there's no better feeling than a personal win. And the State Farm Personal Price Plan can help you do just that. Talk to a State Farm agent today to learn how you can bundle and save with the personal price plan. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices are based on rating plans that vary by state. Coverage options are selected by the customer. Availability, amount of discounts and savings, and eligibility vary by state. Due to the graphic nature of this murder case, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes dramatizations and discussions of murder and assault that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. Oh, swirling winds of fate, show me my path. Tell me of my riches, fame, and loves to come. Hmm, Ah, your future is bound to motherhood, your own name subservient to those who will surpass you. He will know no fame, but your daughter... Natalia? Natalia will capture the world with her beauty and her charm. That's... good. That's good. I can live with that. Is there anything I should be wary of? Something that might get in the way of this goal? Hmm. Darkness shows itself to me. Scrambling, kicking, screaming for help. Somebody help! I can't breathe! My lungs! I can't... Avoid the water at all costs, or she will drown, cold and alone. This is Unsolved Murders, True Crime Stories, a ParCast original. I'm your host, Carter Roy. And I'm your host, Wendy McKenzie. Every Tuesday, we dive into the world of a real unsolved murder and try to solve the case. This is our first and only episode on the drowning of Natalie Wood. At ParCast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. And if you enjoyed today's episode, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. It really does help. We also now have merchandise. Head to parkcast.com slash merch for more information. You can listen to previous episodes of Unsolved Murders, as well as all of Parcast's other shows on Spotify and wherever else you listen to podcasts. On November 29th, 1981, world-famous actor Natalie Wood drowned off the coast of Catalina Island at the age of 43. Her fate had been foretold in her youth, but no fortune teller could have predicted the controversy that would arise years after Natalie's death. Natalie had been on a boat trip with her husband, Robert Wagner, Brainstorm co-star Christopher Walken, and friend Dennis Deverne. Her death was ruled an accident in 1981, but in 2012, 31 years later, the L.A. County Chief Coroner changed her death certificate from accidental drowning to drowning and undetermined factors. What had once been a tragic accident became a dark and twisted tale of lies, coercion, and confusion. But before we can understand her death, we have to learn about who she was in life. Natalie Wood was born Natalia Nikolaevna Zakarenko on July 20, 1938. 
Her parents were Russian immigrants to the United States. Her father, Nikolai Stepanovich Zakarenko, was a carpenter, and her mother, Maria Stepanova Zudilov, was a ballerina. Natalie was born in San Francisco, but shortly after her birth, the Zakarenko family moved to Santa Rosa, California, a city 55 miles north of San Francisco. Maria, Natalie's mother, had always dreamed of fame, but her career as a ballerina was limited by the birth of her children. A fortune teller soon reignited her passion for fame when the fortune teller told her that Natalie would be known all around the world, so long as Natalie avoided the water. Maria soon dedicated her life to pushing Natalie towards stardom, while pulling her away from the danger of drowning. She took Natalie to see movie after movie, having the toddler learn to act by watching acting on the screen. This early training soon paid off. In 1942, when Natalie was four years old, a feature film titled Happy Land selected Santa Rosa as its filming location. With opportunity arriving on her doorstep, Maria did everything she could to get Natalie a role in the film. Excuse me, young man. Step back behind the barrier, ma'am. This set isn't open to the public. I know, I know. But I've heard rumblings around town that Mr. Pitchell, that's the director standing over there, correct? Mr. Pitchell, yeah. He's looking for a young girl. Let me stop you there, ma'am. Casting handles that. And casting only works with people who have agents. Does your daughter have an agent? No, but... Then goodbye. And have a nice day. Quick, Natalie, while he's not looking, run to Mr. Pitchell and sing him a song. Four-year-old Natalie snuck onto the set and sang for Irving Pitchell, the director of Happyland. Pitchell found Natalie so adorable that he immediately cast her in the film. Natalie very convincingly played the part of a girl who drops her ice cream cone. Mr. Pitchell complimented her performance, and Maria took this as a sign that Natalie's big break had come. After some long arguments with Nikolai, Maria moved the family to Los Angeles. While there, Maria took Natalie to audition after audition. But for three years, Natalie did not land a single role. Finally, in 1946, when Natalie was eight years old, Irving Pitchell reached out to bring Natalie onto his new film, Tomorrow is Forever. This time, Natalie's role was much more substantial. She played the adopted daughter of a character played by Orson Welles, one of the superstars of the time. However, RKO Pictures, the studio producing the film, thought Natalia Nikolaevna Zakarenko was too difficult for American audiences to pronounce, and they dubbed her Natalie Wood instead. Natalie proved herself to be a talented and professional young actor, impressing her fellow cast members with an almost effortless skill for acting. However, one scene required Natalie to cry on cue, but given her lack of formal training, Natalie struggled to tear up, unsure of how to summon that emotion. Desperate to find a solution, Maria opened a jar containing a butterfly and pulled Natalie to the side. She forced Natalie to watch as she tore the butterfly to pieces with her bare hands. Natalie began sobbing uncontrollably, and Maria rushed her back to the set. 
Natalie's performance in this scene was so striking, Natalie was awarded the Most Talented Young Actress of 1946 award from Box Office Magazine. Later that same year, Natalie's younger sister, Lana, was born. Natalie immediately loved her younger sister and was excited to welcome her into the world. But having a second daughter did nothing to slow down Maria's ambitions for her daughter or Natalie's momentum. In 1947, Natalie got her next big role as Susan Walker in the Christmas classic, Miracle on 34th Street. This film was a blockbuster hit and did wonders for Natalie's career. Seemingly overnight, the young actor was broadly considered a child star. Directors started to flock to Maria, attempting to get Natalie to star in their films as well. Unfortunately, some of these opportunities were a little more dangerous than the others. In 1948, when Natalie was 10 years old, she starred in a movie called Green Promise. One scene in this film required Natalie to cross a bridge over an artificial river. The bridge was rigged to collapse the moment she reached safety, providing suspense within the movie. Due to the fortune teller's prophecy, Maria was dreadfully afraid of the water, and she had spread that fear to Natalie. She had even prevented Natalie from learning to swim, but her thirst for stardom overwhelmed her fear. Maria pushed Natalie to film the scene. As Natalie crossed the bridge, the prop malfunctioned. The bridge collapsed with Natalie on top of it, and she fell into the water, desperately holding onto the remains of the bridge. Oh my God, somebody help her! No, keep rolling. Are you insane? She needs help. I swear to God, if any of you ruins this take, you'll never work in this industry again. She had broken her wrist in the fall, and the water pulled at her legs. Yet, despite her obvious peril, William D. Russell, the director of the film, kept the cameras rolling instead of rushing to her rescue. As they filmed, Natalie's adrenaline-fueled mind managed to maintain her composure in spite of her broken wrist. This genuine moment of terror was used in the final cut of the film. This brush with death only inspired Maria to push Natalie further, although most films were much safer than The Green Promise. For years, Natalie continued to acquire regular work in the movie industry, and her reputation as a skilled actor and a wonderful person began to spread. People loved working with her, and she was widely praised for her intelligence, professionalism, and kindness. Her career continued on its trajectory toward success, and in 1956, when she was 18 years old, she was declared Life Magazine's most beautiful teenager in the world. Her fame would only grow from there. Building on the momentum gained from that award, the film studio 20th Century Fox attempted to further drive her celebrity. They arranged for her to go on a date with 26-year-old film heartthrob Robert Wagner, an actor Natalie had had a crush on since she was a child. Robert John Wagner Jr. was born on February 10, 1930, in Detroit, Michigan. He was the only child of Hazel Wagner and Robert John Wagner Sr., a traveling salesman for Ford. During World War II, the Wagners had moved to Bel Air, California. There, he developed a passion for acting. In one particular audition, Robert won over a Warner Brothers casting director by performing impressions. He appeared as an extra in over 40 films. Then, thanks to his diligence and commitment to his craft, 
He finally achieved movie stardom in 1953, when he was 23 years old, by landing the lead role in Beneath the Twelve Mile Reef. Beneath the Twelve Mile Reef was a smash hit, and due to Robert Wagner's good looks, he became an international heartthrob. Robert entered into a contract with 20th Century Fox, and much like they had done with Natalie's career, the studio wished to make Robert's stardom increase tenfold. Thus, on July 20th, 1956, when 20th Century Fox arranged for the newly 18-year-old Natalie and the 26-year-old Robert to go on a date, they were desperately hoping this relationship would blossom into something more. For better or worse, they were right. This single day turned into a full-blown relationship, and Robert and Natalie began going steady. Through the next year, the couple grew ever closer, until on December 6th, 1957, Robert brought Natalie aboard his yacht and placed a pearl and diamond ring at the bottom of her glass of Dom Perignon. Natalie eagerly said yes to Robert's ostentatious proposal. The couple announced their union to the press the very next day. The Hollywood press became obsessed with their relationship, calling their marriage the glittering union of the 20th century. The relationship between movie stars felt like it came out of a movie itself, and the couple did all they could to make this seem the case. Natalie and Robert rode a train to Scottsdale, Arizona, and after only three weeks of engagement, they got married on December 28, 1957. The entire ordeal was published in the March 1958 issues of Photoplay, Modern Screen, and Motion Picture magazines. For the couple's honeymoon, Robert pushed Natalie to challenge her fear of the water. He took her on a month-long cruise, and the couple grew even closer than they had been before. Unfortunately, as Natalie's marriage was on the upswing, her career began taking a downturn. In 1958, she starred in a film titled Marjorie Morningstar. The film, shot in the Adirondack Mountains near the Canadian border, and the isolated locale began to take a toll on her psyche. Furthermore, she developed a contentious relationship with Irving Rapper, the director of the film. She considered him to be a dogmatic man from the Hollywood old guard, disagreeing with his creative choices as well as his working style. This experience soured her mentality towards her work. Throughout 1958, she would refuse roles and fail to appear on press tours in explicit violation of her contract with Warner Brothers insisting that she be with Robert Wagner at all times. Eventually, Warner Brothers put her on unpaid suspension, and she spent the rest of the year and the entirety of 1959 out of work. In 1960, Natalie returned to film when Robert encouraged her to join him on a film titled All the Fine Young Cannibals, produced by MGM, not Warner Brothers. This was the first film the couple starred in together, but unfortunately for them, the movie turned out to be a flop. The press started to turn on Natalie, calling her washed up. However, as Natalie had recaptured the acting bug and her suspension with Warner Brothers had expired, she began to look for her next big role. In 1961, Natalie met with Elia Kazan, a budding director at the time, to speak about a part in his film, Splendor in the Grass. Natalie Wood. It's truly a pleasure to meet you in person. Although, 
If I may be blunt, you may not be the right person for the job. Your prior refusals to act don't exactly bode well for my project. Well, Mr. Kazan, if I might say so, my prior refusals have nothing to do with your film. If you'd offer me the role, I can promise I will give you a wonderful performance. Tell me something. Are you just the well-mannered young wife you pretend to be? Or are you acting even now? I... Um, I don't know what you mean. I can only say that I love my profession. There's a desperate twinkle in your eyes. Life isn't as perfect as the press would have me believe, is it? It never is. Wonderful. Ilya could tell that Natalie was having some personal problems, and he felt that that made her perfect for the role. Unfortunately, as her professional life was once again on the rise, the relationship issues that she had previously kept hidden began to bubble up to the surface in a particularly dramatic way. We'll learn about the hidden troubles of Natalie Wood's personal life after this. And now, back to the story. By 1961, world-famous actor Natalie Wood had been married to the equally famous Robert Wagner for four years. The press had publicized their marriage as a fairy tale relationship, but the truth was much darker than it appeared. Help! Somebody please help me! Someone please help me! It's half past midnight. What is going on? Please let me in. My husband is trying to kill me. Lady, you're overreacting. I'm sure your husband is just a little worked up. Just let me in. According to the CBS documentary series 48 Hours, sometime in the early months of 1961, Natalie Wood ran from house to house screaming for her life. She took shelter at a neighbor's home, explaining that Robert had been trying to kill her, although she never specified why. Despite her fear, Natalie also insisted that they not call the police. As the night wore on, she grew calmer, and in the morning, she returned to her home, claiming that she had overreacted and that everything was fine. While she remained unharmed, it soon became clear that everything was not fine in Natalie's household. On June 21, 1961, Natalie and Robert announced an official separation to the press. We have no immediate plans for divorce, but what else should I say, Mom? Hmm. We are both hopeful the problems that exist between us can be worked out uh, satisfactorily. Signed, the Wagners. Let's send it off. It quickly appeared that their attempts at mediation were failing. In August 1961, two months after the separation, the couple signed a community property settlement and they divided their salaries and real estate properties up 50-50. Splendor in the Grass began filming shortly after, and Natalie dealt with her troubling personal life by throwing herself into her work. Of course, that work involved developing chemistry with her co-star, young heartthrob Warren Beatty. The duo's on-set chemistry soon turned to off-set flirtation. Robert heard of their burgeoning relationship and grew jealous. In his memoir, Robert recalled that sometimes he, quote, 
would sit outside Warren Beatty's home with a gun, just waiting for him to come outside. Of course, Robert went on to say that while he had contemplated acting, he ultimately realized he would never actually harm Warren Beatty. At the same time, Splendor in the Grass went on to great critical success, earning the 1962 Academy Award for Best Original Screenplay and earning Natalie Wood renewed appreciation for her acting skills in the Hollywood press. Having months to work through her internal frustration with Robert, Natalie decided to try and mend things with her husband. Robert had other plans. Robert, honey, I've come to... Oh my God! The butler! (gasps) Mrs. Wagner, please don't blame your husband. Don't blame him? Did his lips just accidentally meet your own? I advanced on him. It's not his fault. No, it is his fault. And we're through. Natalie had just discovered her husband's most well-kept secret in the worst possible way. Robert Wagner was bisexual, and he had been having an affair with his butler. Natalie filed for divorce in April 1962. In her filing, she cited mental cruelties, adultery, and threats of violence as her primary reasons for seeking a divorce. Now officially separated from Robert, Natalie struck up a relationship with her old co-star, Warren Beatty. She also refocused herself on her acting career. In 1963, she starred in the romantic comedy Love with a Proper Stranger, alongside Steve McQueen. She earned her third Oscar nomination for her performance in this film. Robert's life was also looking up as he found a new love interest of his own. On July 22, 1963, he married actor Marion Marshall and moved with her to Europe. Yet, even with Robert gone, Natalie's love life didn't get any easier. She soon found that Warren and Robert were more similar than she had once thought. According to Lana, Natalie's sister, Warren Beatty had an explosive temper and plenty of baggage from his prior failed relationships. Natalie later described Warren Beatty in an interview as, quote, Mount Vesuvius, a live volcano with eruptions each day, end quote. She also admits that she, quote, contributed her share of fireworks, end quote, to the contentiousness of the relationship. These back-to-back awful relationships took their toll on Natalie's psyche. Sometime in 1966, Warren Beatty grew tired of their constant fighting and broke off their relationship. Natalie did not handle it well. Lana, get to Cedar Sinai Hospital. It's your sister. She's she's tried to kill herself. Natalie was so depressed after her breakups with Robert and Warren that she swallowed a handful of sleeping pills in an attempt to end her own life. Her unconscious body was discovered by her mother before her heart stopped, and her mother called an ambulance, rushing Natalie to the hospital. Maria checked her daughter in under a false name to avoid a media frenzy. Her mother and sister remained by her side as she recovered in the hospital. They provided emotional support while also helping her rebuild her self-esteem, and they encouraged her to continue seeking help from professionals. In 1967, Natalie focused on healing. She attended regular therapy sessions and attempted to avoid explosive men. She ended up dating British agent, writer, and producer Richard Gregson, 
during this time. Richard did not have the same temper as the other men, and their relationship developed quickly. The couple got married on May 30, 1969. For over a year, the relationship blossomed, especially when on September 29, 1970, Natalie and Richard had a daughter, Natasha Gregson. Natasha was Natalie's first child and dearly loved. They made a happy family until one dark moment in August of 1971. Richard, phone! Richard! Fine, I'll get it. Darling, I know it's risky calling you at home, but I could hardly wait another moment. Imagine what your wife would say if she knew. I think I'd say I want a divorce. After picking up the phone at an inopportune time, Natalie caught her husband having an affair with his secretary. She quickly began pursuing a divorce. Maria encouraged Natalie to make this marriage work. After all, Richard didn't have a temper like Natalie's other ex-lovers. However, Natalie insisted that she wouldn't stand for his disrespect. She petitioned the courts for a divorce and separated from her second husband, maintaining custody of her daughter, Natasha. Later that same year, 1971, Natalie ran into Robert Wagner at a party. By pure chance, she discovered that Robert had divorced his second wife and gotten engaged to Tina Sinatra, Frank Sinatra's youngest daughter. Robert and Natalie's accidental run-in soon reignited their passion for each other. They began seeing each other in secret, and in December 1971, Robert broke off his engagement with Tina and asked Natalie to marry him once more. Robert and Natalie continued to date as they waited for Natalie's second divorce to Gregson to finalize. This eventually came to pass in April of 1972. With Richard out of the way, Natalie and Robert got remarried on July 16, 1972, 10 years after their initial divorce. This time around, things seemed good. Both parties had learned about themselves and their flaws in the years that they had been apart. In 1973, the couple co-starred in a movie titled The Affair. Then, on March 9, 1974, they had their first daughter together, naming her Courtney Brooke Wagner. Natalie was content with her life and happily slowed down her career to focus on raising her daughters, Natasha and Courtney. She would show her baby to friends and say, Who needs movies? From all accounts, life for Natalie was good. When Natasha and Courtney were old enough to start attending school, Natalie found herself with lots of time and little to do. Robert encouraged her to return to acting, and in December 1976, Natalie and Robert became co-stars once more in the made-for-TV NBC movie Cat on a Hot Tin Roof. This peaceful life would continue for some time, and Natalie slowly but deliberately came back to acting on her own terms. Then, in 1981, Natalie received a starring role in a movie called Brainstorm. In this film, she starred alongside Christopher Walken. Christopher had just won the 1979 Academy Award for Best Actor in a supporting role due to his performance in the film The Deer Hunter. Natalie and Christopher hit it off early and found their friendship forming quickly and naturally. Rumors began to spread about their relationship, and unfortunately, those rumors spread back to Robert Wagner himself. 
Robert's jealousy was one of Natalie's biggest issues in their first marriage, and she was immediately on guard when he heard the rumors. But Robert, for his part, wanted to show Natalie that he had grown. In order to prove to his wife that he was no longer the jealous man that he once was, he invited Christopher Walken to join Natalie, himself, and his boat captain, a man named Dennis Deverne, on his yacht over Thanksgiving weekend. Christopher eagerly agreed, and on November 27, 1981, those four people took off from L.A., sailing to Catalina Island. The yacht was named Splendor, after the 1961 movie that reignited Natalie's career, Splendor in the Grass. Things started off wonderfully. Their hours sailing to the island were composed of friendly conversation and a jovial atmosphere. The first night, the group talked, laughed, and partied on Catalina Island, eating dinner at a local restaurant. Dinner remained cheerful, but as they ate, they began to drink. And as they drank, Robert's true feelings began to show. When the group returned to the boat that night, Robert was officially drunk. The sun was down, and Robert, in his drunkenness, insisted on moving the boat to the other side of the island. Stop it, Robert. You're too drunk and it's too dark. Leave the boat alone. Robert did not take this well. He began shouting, and finally, after a short while, accused Natalie of flirting with Christopher Walken. The couple shouted for a while until Natalie stormed off. She sought out Dennis Deverne, the captain of the ship, and asked him to take her back to shore on Catalina Island. Once there, she found a phone and tried to call for a seaplane to take her home. Hello? I'd like a ride home. I'm on Catalina, and my husband is being a bore, and... that's all well and good, but it's one o'clock in the morning. I know, I I know, but I'll pay anything. I just need to get off this island. Ma'am, it's one in the morning. It's Thanksgiving weekend. All my men are at home, asleep, with their families. I'm not sending a plane to help you out of your lover's quarrel. You don't understand. I can't go back. I won't hear it. Have a good night. Natalie was stranded on the island, but she refused to return to her husband. She booked herself and Dennis hotel rooms on the island where they stayed for the rest of the night. Dennis claims that as they sat in the hotel, Natalie opened up to him about her relationship. I'm through with him. He claims he's changed, but he's just the same jealous, temperamental man. I'm asking for a divorce as soon as we get home. However, the next morning, November 28th, once she'd slept and sobered up, she told Dennis that she wanted to smooth things out. The two returned to the yacht in the early morning. At Robert's request, they moved the Splendor to a less populated part of the island. Once more isolated, Robert and Natalie calmly discussed the night before and everything seemed to be okay. The four ate lunch together and then laid down separately to take afternoon naps. When Robert awoke, he searched the boat for his wife. Instead, he only found a note. Natalie and Christopher had taken the boat's dinghy to shore to get dinner, without him. Robert grew agitated. He felt he had been abandoned and rushed to shore to confront his wife. He arrived at the restaurant where Natalie and Christopher had been dining and drinking. He managed to keep his composure and join them. However, his inhibitions were lowered, and he began to drink excessively. Christopher and Natalie matched Robert's drinking pace, 
and by the time they finished at the restaurant, an employee of the restaurant made a phone call to a man named Doug Bombard. Well, Doug Bombard was both the owner of the restaurant and the Catalina Harbor master. He was also a friend of Wooden Wagner's. Concerned for his friend's safety, Doug escorted the trio back to their boat. After some drunken stumbling, Doug managed to get the three actors on board. But Robert and Natalie had both become visibly upset. In an effort to avoid tension, Dennis, Robert's yacht captain, brought the group to the salon at the back of the ship and tried to continue the party. Doug rescinded the invitation and went home, while Dennis made an effort to distract Robert. But as Natalie continued to converse with Christopher, Robert's jealousy overwhelmed him. He confronted Christopher and asked him if he was trying to sleep with his wife while throwing a bottle of wine against the wall in a fit of rage. Christopher vehemently insisted that was not his goal, and Natalie pulled Robert away. Christopher left the room as Natalie and Robert began to argue. The argument lasted for hours. Christopher went to bed, while Dennis listened nervously on the other end of the boat. After some time, Dennis decided to check in on them. And Robert turned his anger on him, which, according to Dennis, was so intense that Dennis genuinely feared for his own life. Frightened, Dennis went back upstairs and turned up the music in order to drown out the fight that was happening below him. Then, around midnight, the fighting stopped. And there was silence. Dennis waited ten minutes or so, then he went and checked on his employer. He found Robert sitting at the ladder to the dinghy, curled up and crying. Dennis asked Robert what was wrong. Robert responded by telling him that Natalie had gone missing. Dennis found this odd for several reasons. While the yacht was large, it wasn't large enough for someone to truly go missing on board. And Dennis had just heard Natalie yelling at Robert only 10 minutes before. Dennis asked his boss if he should turn on the boat's searchlight or call the Coast Guard. Perhaps Natalie had fallen overboard and they might need the Coast Guard's assistance. However, Robert insisted they neither turn on the searchlight nor call for help. He claimed they should just wait for Natalie as she was bound to return at any moment. Against his better instincts, Dennis listened to Robert. Robert was his employer and Natalie's husband. He thought that Robert probably knew best. As they waited, Robert cracked open a bottle of scotch and the duo drank. They waited a full hour for Natalie to return, but by 1.30 a.m. on November 29th, there was no sign of her. At this point, Dennis insisted that they do something. Waiting wasn't helping them find Natalie. Robert agreed, but he still refused to call the Coast Guard. Instead, he called his friends in town on Catalina and asked if they had seen Natalie anywhere that night. Robert's friends told him to sit tight while they searched the town. Robert and Dennis waited once more. But by 3.30 a.m., it became clear that Natalie was nowhere to be found. Finally, Dennis convinced Robert to call the Coast Guard. The Coast Guard was shocked to hear their story, and they ranted to each other as they shipped off to find Natalie Wood. We're looking for the Natalie Wood? Do you think we'll be able to get her autograph? She's been missing for over three hours. 
It's freezing cold, it's raining, it's dark, and they say she can't swim a lick. I doubt she'll be in any shape to give a goddamn autograph. The Coast Guard scoured the waves for hours, searching desperately for Natalie. The bright, iridescent glow of their searchlights was slowly replaced by the rising sun. Doug Bombard, the Catalina Harbor director who knew Natalie, joined the search as soon as he heard that she was missing. At 7.44 a.m. on November 29, 1981, Doug's boat found something. Near, near the cliff, there, there's a dinghy on the kelp. Slow the boat down. From the looks of it, that dinghy belongs to Wagner. I'm sure she's nearby. But if she made it to land, wouldn't someone have found her by now? She didn't make it to land. There. Bobbing on the waves. A red parka and dark brown hair. Attention all boats, we've found her. Natalie Wood has drowned. We'll learn about the fallout from Natalie's death after this. And now, back to the story. On Thanksgiving weekend in 1981, Natalie Wood spent a few days on Catalina Island with her husband, Robert Wagner, her co-worker, Christopher Walken, and her boat captain, Dennis Deverne. The trip came to an abrupt end when Natalie vanished from her yacht in the middle of the night. On November 29th at 7.44 a.m., hours after she initially disappeared, Doug Bombard, the Catalina Harbor director, discovered the dinghy from Natalie's yacht washed ashore and Natalie's body floating in a rocky cove a full mile away from the yacht. She had been wearing a bright red parka, her nightgown, and heavy socks. The red coloring of the coat had caught Doug's eye, and an air pocket within the coat had kept Natalie's body afloat. If it hadn't been for that coat, Natalie likely would have never been found at all. Natalie's body was recovered from the water by a lifeguard named Roger Smith. Roger was the Los Angeles County supervising rescue boat captain at the time, and when he brought Natalie's body to shore, he was furious. Roger noticed that apart from being dead, Natalie's body was in exceptionally good condition for a drowning victim. She had bruises and scratches on her arms, but her body was not waterlogged, and her fingers were still pliable. The fact that Natalie's fingers could still be bent showed that rigor mortis, the stiffening of the body that occurs after death, had yet to set in. Rigor mortis is commonly used to determine the time of death. It often sets in three to four hours after someone has died. The fact that Natalie's body was still pliable proved that she had died less than three hours before she was found. Hey, Captain, she hasn't been gone that long. If we'd gotten here just a little bit earlier. We could have saved her. It breaks my heart. But if her husband had just realized how much danger she was in and called us right away, none of this would have had to happen. Word spread of Natalie's discovery throughout the search party. Assistant Sheriff of Los Angeles County, Robert Edmonds, broke the news to Robert Wagner that they'd found his wife. Assistant Sheriff Edmonds later described Robert Wagner as a, quote, shocked man, end quote. 
He described that Robert expressed great concern about the safety and comfort of his children. For Robert's sake, Assistant Sheriff Edmonds flew Robert Wagner and Christopher Walken back to the mainland in a police helicopter shortly after Natalie was found. Assistant Sheriff Edmonds faced some criticism over this decision as it seemed like he wasn't concerned with taking every step in making a proper investigation. However, he insists to this day that he could get Robert to his children and effectively investigate the case at the same time. He left the case in the hands of homicide detective Dwayne Raysher. Raysher began making the rounds in Avalon, a town on Catalina Island, interviewing anyone who might have seen Natalie prior to her disappearance. He soon learned about her behavior at the bar, as well as her stay in a hotel the night before. Meanwhile, the coroner had to officially identify the body as Natalie Wood. As Robert Wagner and Christopher Walken had flown back to Los Angeles, Dennis DeVern was the only person around qualified to make the call. Dennis identified the body as Natalie Wood, and the news was official. Natalie was, in fact, dead. Shortly after, Detective Raysher interviewed Dennis about the nights leading up to that point. Dennis, nervous about police inquiry, told the police that he and Natalie had spent every night of their trip on board the Splendor. Not only that, but Dennis insisted that the trip had been without incident. No arguing or discontentment from anybody. Raysher's interest was piqued. Dennis had just told him a bald-faced lie. Raysher pointed out that he knew Dennis and Natalie had spent a night on the island, and Dennis immediately clammed up. Dennis ended the interview, insisting that he would need a lawyer present if they wished to talk any further. As the Splendor was now being detained as a crime scene, Dennis had to take a passenger boat back to the mainland. Robert Wagner sent a car service to pick up Dennis. When Dennis arrived at Robert's house, he was met by Robert's attorney. Dennis, buddy, glad you could make it. Robert's here. He's mourning with his kids, but he'd love to see you soon. Anyway, while we're waiting, I need to ask you, have you told anyone about what happened last night? No? Good. Well, Dennis, if you'd like to stay out of prison, and if you'd like to help me keep two innocent men out of jail, you need to keep quiet. Don't tell anybody. Not your mother, not me. Not the press, and especially not Detective Rasher. Any details about last night. Mum's the word. After Dennis agreed to stay quiet, Robert paid for his attorney to help ensure that Dennis had legal protection and proper incentive to keep his mouth shut. As Robert was compelling Dennis to stay quiet, Natalie's body had made it to the coroner's office. She was examined by the chief medical examiner at the time, Thomas T. Noguchi. Thomas Noguchi was the first famous coroner within the United States, as he had gained fame through his thorough examinations of many deceased celebrities. He had also become known for his extremely public mission to educate the populace about the dangers of alcohol and drug consumption. On November 30, 1981, Thomas Noguchi held a press conference to announce the autopsy results. He found that Natalie's blood alcohol level was at... 0.14%, 0.04% higher than the legal driving limit at the time. 
Natalie's system also had the remnants of a motion sickness pill and a painkiller, which should have not been mixed with alcohol. And finally, he found that Natalie's body had bruising on her arms and on her cheek, which could be explained by a fall from the boat. Dr. Noguchi also highlighted the fact that the dinghy's side had fingernail scratches, while the algae on the yacht's stepladder was undisturbed. This indicated to Noguchi that she had attempted to board the dinghy, but failed, falling into the water. Breaking news, Chief Medical Examiner Thomas T. Noguchi has declared Natalie Wood's death a tragic accident. Noguchi states that it was directly caused by Natalie's extreme intoxication at the time. However, Noguchi did not possess all of the evidence at the time of his press conference. In the early days of December 1981, a Los Angeles commodities broker named John Payne and his girlfriend, Marilyn Wayne, contacted the police to give their eyewitness accounts of the events that had transpired on the night of Natalie's drowning. John and Marilyn had been sleeping aboard John's boat, which was docked not far from the Splendor. Around midnight, the couple had heard a woman yelling, Help me! Someone please help me! John turned on his beam light to search for the voice upon the water. But even with this light, the night was too dark to see the voice's source. Marilyn attempted to call the harbor patrol, but nobody answered. The couple then called the sheriff's office in Avalon, a town on Catalina Island that was 12 miles away from their dock. I hear you, I hear you. She's shouting for help. You can't see her. Sounds like we've got a lady lost in the waves. We'll send a helicopter with a spotlight out to find her right away. You're welcome. Hey, Jimmy, call up the helicopter pilot. We've got an alleged search and rescue going on. Helicopter pilot? <laughs> we don't have a helicopter pilot. Carl quit last month. Oh. Well, uh, well, I don't have that lady's number. Well, I hope they'll be all right. The helicopter never came. Shortly after they hung up the phone, they heard a man's voice respond to the cries for help. The man's words were slurred and seemed angry as he said, quote, Oh, hold on, we're coming to get you. The man repeated his words several times, and after 15 minutes, the cries for help stopped. The couple assumed that this meant the woman had been saved, and they went back to sleep hoping for the best. After they had heard Noguchi's press conference, the couple felt they had to come forward with their story. Due to their proximity to the splendor, they felt confident that Natalie had been the person they heard crying for help. When Detective Raysher heard of this couple's story, he dismissed it as false, without truly providing a reason why. He simply assumed that they were trying to get their five minutes of fame. Marilyn even offered to take a polygraph test to prove that her account was genuine, but Detective Raysher refused to officially interview her for the investigation. Stonewalled by the police, Marilyn took her story to the Los Angeles Times, even going so far as to draw a map to show her boat's location, the Splendor's location, and the approximate location of the screams on the night of Natalie's drowning. On December 1st, 1981, the LA Times published their article on the Natalie Wood case. Using the couple's eyewitness account to cast doubt on Noguchi's declaration that the death had been an accident, Natalie's sister, Lana Wood, and other people at the time publicly agreed with the paper's doubt. On December 2, 1981, 
Natalie was buried near Marilyn Monroe. Robert and his three daughters were escorted to the cemetery by police. Through streets were closed off to prevent the press from interrupting the funeral proceedings. On December 3rd, five whole days after Natalie's death, Detective Raysher finally interviewed Christopher Walken about his experience on that tragic night. Christopher told the detective that Robert and Natalie had gotten into an incredibly heated argument earlier in the night. Christopher claimed he had joined the argument for a moment, then immediately regretted it. He realized he had inserted himself into an argument between a married couple, something he had no business doing, and he left, retiring to his room for the night. He had fallen asleep before midnight and slept through most of the events that transpired later in the night. With Christopher's testimony in tow, Detective Raysher moved on. On December 4th, he interviewed Robert Wagner. When the detective arrived at Wagner's house, Robert's attorney was already present. Robert's attorney brought the detective to Robert's room, where Robert was laying in his bed forlorn. Robert told Detective Raysher many odd things. He claimed that he and Natalie had not fought at all that weekend, and that Natalie likely slipped into the water on accident while trying to fasten the dinghy more tightly to the boat. When the detective asked Robert why he hadn't called the Coast Guard sooner, Robert said that he assumed Natalie had just, quote, gone to party on another boat because that's just the kind of woman she was. Despite the fact that Robert's story seemed inconsistent with Christopher's story, Detective Raysher took Robert's testimony and moved on. Six days later, on December 10th, Detective Raysher attempted to interview Dennis Deverne a second time. This time, Dennis had come prepared. He had two attorneys at his side, both of whom had been hired by Robert Wagner. Before Detective Raysher had the opportunity to ask Dennis any questions, the attorneys handed him a prepared statement declaring that Dennis had no knowledge pertaining to Natalie's disappearance. The statement also closely resembled Robert Wagner's testimony at the time, insisting that no fight had occurred and stating that Natalie had likely wandered off the boat and fell into the water on accident. Detective Raysher accepted the written statement and left without asking any real questions. On December 11th, Detective Raysher officially closed the investigation and publicly ruled that Natalie Wood's death had been an accidental tragedy and not a murder. However, Natalie's loved ones disagreed. Maria, they say your daughter's death was accidental. What do you think of the investigators' conclusions? Anybody who says my daughter's death was some sort of mistake is lying. She was murdered, and she was murdered by her wretched sod of a husband, that evil Robert Wagner. Natalie's mother and sister, Maria and Lana, both directly accused Robert of having murdered their loved one, and the press went wild. Paparazzi began hounding Robert and soon began hounding Dennis, trying to get them to change their stories. Robert had Dennis move into his guest house and did all he could to protect Dennis from outside influence, even turning away Dennis's girlfriend when she showed up at his door. Eventually, the fervor around the case died down. Dennis sold the splendor for Robert, and they continued on with their lives. For years, Dennis and Robert maintained their story, and for years, Lana and Maria publicly accused Robert of murdering Natalie. In 1998, 
Maria died from old age. Her persistent hounding of Robert in the press had made her a pariah, and her own granddaughters did not attend her funeral. Another 13 years would pass before Lana would see any vindication for her sister and her mother. Finally, in 2011, after 30 years of silence, Dennis Deverne went to the press with a shocking admission. The world is churning as the boat captain from Natalie Wood's last voyage admits that he's been lying to police and the press for three decades. Dennis Deverne claims that he helped cover up evidence pointing to Robert Wagner's guilt at the urging of Robert and his lawyers. More on this breaking story after this. Dennis proceeded to tell the press what really happened that night. We've already told you his new version of the story. Natalie and Robert had gotten into two heated fights, one of which ended with Natalie vanished and Robert crying on the ground. Dennis's new story lined up with physical evidence on the boat, as well as the testimonies of Christopher Walken and the couple who were staying on another boat that night. His new story also contradicted Robert's version of events, showing Robert to have been more aggressive that night than Robert had claimed to be. With this bombshell of a confession, Lana Wood led the charge to get the case reopened. She formed a petition claiming that the LAPD had mishandled the initial investigation and 700 people signed on. At the behest of the public, the Los Angeles Sheriff's Office assigned new detectives to the case, Lieutenants John Corinna and Ralph Hernandez. The Sheriff's Office also assigned Coroner Lakshminen Sativa Jiswaran to re-examine Noguchi's initial autopsy report. Lakshminen's take on the initial autopsy greatly differed from Noguchi's. Lakshminen stated that, quote, the location of the bruises, the multiplicity of the bruises, and the lack of head trauma or facial bruising all support the theory that the bruising occurred prior to Natalie's entry into the water. When the detectives reviewed Robert's testimonies over the years, they said, quote, We think Robert's constantly changed his story a little bit each time he tells it, and his version of events just don't add up. After this re-examination of the case, the sheriff's office felt they had enough evidence to change Natalie's death certificate. Her cause of death was initially listed as accidental drowning, but it has been changed to drowning and undetermined factors. Unfortunately, even with all this new evidence turning up, police still do not have enough evidence to prove one way or another whether Natalie's death was accidental or homicidal. In fact, they don't even have enough evidence to legally view Robert Wagner as a suspect in her death. Instead, they are limited to calling Robert a person of interest in the case. Due to this lack of evidence, the police cannot bring Robert in for an interview. When asked about Dennis's changing story, Robert and his lawyers have remained tight-lipped, denying every request for a public statement on the story. Since 2011, no progress has been made on the case. Robert Wagner is now 88 years old and still acts from time to time. He has a recurring role on NCIS, and last appeared in an episode that aired on March 12, 2019. Robert is the only person in the world who knows if Natalie's death was accidental. And Robert isn't talking. Given the fact that he's been caught in a lie multiple times in the past, 
we can say for certain that Robert is hiding something. Yet, with that said, he may not be hiding a murder. The sheriff who broke the news of Natalie's death thought that Robert looked genuinely shocked at the time. His bedridden behavior when interviewed by Detective Dwayne Rasher could also indicate severe grief for his loved one. It's entirely possible that Robert is lying and that Natalie's death was accidental. Perhaps he knew that she had boarded the dinghy, but had no intention or no expectation of her being harmed. This could explain why he was surprised to hear that she died. Perhaps he lied to protect himself because he knew that an honest portrayal of his anger would make him look suspicious, even if her death was accidental. That's certainly possible. And yet it's still entirely possible that Natalie's death was not accidental in the slightest. Perhaps she was thrown from the boat with no expectation of her being seen again. We will likely never know what actually happened to Natalie Wood. Her life was a whirlwind of glitz and glamour, fame and shame. She dealt with many struggles, often at the hands of those that she loved the most. Her overbearing and demanding mother forced her into an acting career. Every one of her romantic interests betrayed her at some point in time. Even her last moments were fraught with tension and confusion. And despite all this suffering, her life was also marked by stunning achievements. She was an actor of incredible talent who starred in iconic films that will never be forgotten. Her time on the silver screen was truly unforgettable. It is tragic that her death is even more so. Thanks again for tuning in to Unsolved Murders. We'll be back next Tuesday with a new episode. You can find more episodes of Unsolved Murders, as well as all of ParCast's other shows on Spotify and wherever you listen to podcasts. Several of you have asked how to help us if you enjoy the show. The best way to help is to leave a five-star review. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. We'll see you next time. If we live till next time. Unsolved Murders True Crime Stories was created by Max Cutler and developed by Ron Cutler. It is a production of Cutler Media and is part of the Parcast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler with sound design by Kenny Hobbs. Production assistance by Ron Shapiro and Paul Mahler. Additional production assistance by Maggie Admire and Freddie Beckley. Unsolved Murders is written by Alicia Etinoff and stars Carter Roy and Wendy McKenzie. The amazing cast of voice actors includes, in alphabetical order, Rebecca Ahrens Diamond, Freddie Beckley, Mike Capozzi, Sarah Carroll, Susanna Corrington, Sky King, and Steve Pinto. <laughs> <laughs>